Hello, this is Radim. I'm back from Europe, a little bit jet lagged, but ready for another episode. This time I sat down with John D. Cook, a gentleman many of you will know through his informative and fun blogging and tweeting about science and statistics and software development. I've never met John before, but he's a top freelance consultant in data analysis and data modeling. And I feel we have a lot in common, so I'm really excited to discuss the consulting side of things, about doing your own thing in the field of machine learning and data science. In case you're listening to this on some other platform and you don't see the links and the description that we talk about in the podcast, you can find those at rare-technologies.com slash blog. And if you have any questions about going solo, making a living out of your hobby, feel free to reach out to me or John on Twitter or make noise any way you like. This episode was recorded on the 9th of March, 2017. Enjoy. Let's, let's go live. Um, so, hi. Uh, happy to have you here. been really looking forward to this. Um, I've been a long-time fan of your uh, blog and, and the work that you do. Um, you're really a celebrity in the world of statistics and mathematics and publishing. So welcome. Well, thank you. Let, let's start maybe with something that I'm really curious about, and I'm sure a lot of other people are. What does the D stand for in John D. Cook? Uh, Douglas. Oh, okay. There, uh, there are a lot of John Cooks out there. There's a, a golfer, a, a rapper, all kinds of well-known people Uh so I have to use a middle name or at least a middle initial. I see. So do I call you John or John D? No, John. John, all right. There we go. So, John, let's start with a little intro. Um, just a quick summary uh, of, of where you are and a little intro about yourself, please. Sure. So as far as uh, where I am, I'm in uh, Houston, Texas. As far as background, uh, maybe how I got to, to do what I'm doing. Yeah, let's start with that. All right. Well, I'll try to condense it, but um, I uh, started out as a mathematician. I got a PhD in math, uh, did a postdoc, uh, taught math for a little while. And then I left academia, mm -hmm. worked as a programmer. And then I came to MD Anderson Cancer Center uh, to manage software development for biostatistics. Mm -hmm. And while I was there, I segued back into doing more applied math. And then four years ago, I left MD Anderson uh, to go out on my own doing consulting. Mm -hmm. Four years ago. Okay, interesting. Well, I have to say that story is, is quite uh, similar to mine, <laughs> if I may say so. So yeah. this, this, this will be really interesting. Yeah, sure. I studied mathematics and like computer science and then and worked a little bit and <laughs> then went into uh, consulting. Yeah probably about the same time, maybe a year or two earlier. Very interesting. We have a lot of notes to compare, I think. <laughs> Great. But before we get to that, um, let me ask, first of all, um, what you're really famous for and what a lot of people appreciate, myself included, is your blog, where you post these little on-mods about the tools and uh, interesting tidbits from statistics and data and software tools and so on. That, that's, that's really cool. How did you come up with that idea? Um, so I, when I was at Anderson, I would share things with some friends and they would tell me, uh, so, you know, you should start a blog. And I thought, oh, I don't want to start a blog. It's the last thing I want to do. <laughs> <laughs> but eventually I started an internal blog uh, just just at work and then uh, eventually moved over to having a public blog 
Yeah. Okay. Nice. So how do you come up with these ideas? Because I find that format really interesting. Like it's, it's like halfway between a tweet and like a full article. You have these really compact uh, blog posts, which are really popular. So it's, uh, you, I assume you get a lot of audience and a lot of feedback. Um, and it, this is really helping a lot of people. Do you get a lot of uh, interaction with your readers? Yeah, I do. Um, when I started blogging, uh, I was very reluctant to uh, turn on comments. Like, I'm going to allow strangers from around the world to contribute things under my name. Uh, you know, it doesn't sound very smart. But the uh, the comments have been much better than I expected. Uh, a lot of really good comments. I've learned a lot from from the feedback from people. Uh, very high signal-to-noise ratio. Yeah, we also keep a blog, but we also keep some open source tools we maintain. And I, I can tell you that the difference, the signal to noise ratio there is quite different. We get a lot of people with very various levels of uh, understanding, so it can get tedious. But uh, I also notice, and this is really interesting, uh, you also keep several Twitter accounts. Is that still true? Yes, uh, I have... Uh... 18 accounts, I believe. <laughs> All right. <laughs> That's also quite unique, I would say. So how did that come about? Well, uh, first I had a personal Twitter account. And then um, I started an account for uh, shortcut, keyboard shortcuts. I thought this is something I want to learn. Uh, maybe a few other people want to learn it too. So I'll, I'll just make a, a Twitter account that broadcasts these things once a day. That account turned out to not be that popular, but from there I started a few others that worked out better. So which one is the most popular, would you say? Yeah, the most popular is CompSciFact, so computer science and related stuff. Nice. So, so people, guys listening, if you if you haven't seen this, just, just go and have a look. Um, John publishes really interesting stuff, both on the blog and on Twitter. I don't really understand how you find the time because I know as a consultant, and we'll get to consulting in a minute, but I know you have to wear so many hats and do so many things. And the fact that you find time to write so many blog posts and, and do so many tweets, that's amazing to me. Do you use any tools? How, what's your process here? How do you find the material and, and publish it? Well, the Twitter accounts are scheduled in advance mm -hmm. and they're in somewhat of a rotation. I'll have a few spontaneous uh, tweets that are not scheduled, but there's a baseline of tweets that are scheduled. Mm -hmm. uh, and as far as blog posts, most of the blog posts come from something that I'm working on or thinking about. And so I don't usually sit down and try to write a blog, a blog post. Usually the blog post is sort of uh, just a, a more of a spontaneous set of notes or discussion of something that I'm thinking about. Yeah. How, how much time would you say this takes up from, from your day, these tweets and, and this sort of publicizing? Uh, not much. With uh, Twitter, you know, I have a variety of accounts, and so they're just kind of drawers to put things in. When I, when I run across something, uh, say, related to scientific Python, so I've got a Twitter account from that, I'll, I'll paste this in there and, and tweet that out. Mm -hmm. Uh, so that's not something I really sit down and plan to do. Mm -hmm. And the, the blog is similar. A lot of times, uh, I'll bang out a blog post fairly quickly. 
in fact, I've noticed the, uh, the posts that I uh, bang out real quick, say after a bike ride or something, I get an idea, come in and uh, write something real fast. Those tend to be more popular than the posts that I put a lot of effort into. I don't usually write long form, but when I have a long post or, or a post that I've thought about for a long time, those don't those aren't as popular. Maybe they're more more technical or more specialized, but mm-hmm. for whatever reason. Uh, Popularity seems to be inversely proportional to the amount of effort I put into blog posts. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah, maybe it's related to the fact that people don't have much of an attention span. You know, if it's too long, it's like, oh, I'm going to bookmark, maybe come back later. But, uh, you know, few people do. Yeah, I would also say the short ones you have are really like sound bites almost. A bit larger than tweet, but really condensed. Um, really great format, I would say. You hit the gold gold vein there. <laughs> so first of all, the links that we're talking about, the Twitter and so on, they will be in the description. So in case you, you don't know, you can have a look. Now let's get to the consulting. So you say four years ago, you switched from, from working in this bioinformatics industry into doing your own thing. What prompted that decision? Why did you do that? <laughs> uh, there were a lot of reasons. I had decided to leave long before I actually did. I mean, I have a wife and four children, and so I I didn't change jobs lightly. Um, Mm -hmm. But um, there there were several reasons. Uh, I wanted to be on my own. So positive reasons. I, I, I wanted to be more of an entrepreneur. I wanted to have the, the freedom to work on things that I think are important and so forth. Um, there were a few negative reasons, uh, but I guess I'd rather not go into that. But uh, there were a few things that made it easier to go ahead and, and make the leap. Uh-huh. Yeah, well, was it difficult for you? And I'm asking because I know how, how tricky that is. I don't know if you had experience doing this type of things, and maybe it's also easier in the U.S. overall. Uh, you know, in Europe, there's a lot of bureaucracy especially in Eastern Europe, where I come from. So it was really, really difficult, a lot of stress in the beginning. How difficult was that leap for you? Uh, I mean, with regard to setting up accounting, legalese, learning the, the skills that are necessary to do things on your own. There wasn't a lot of uh, bureaucratic work to do. Um, I had to learn marketing. I had to learn how to how to find work. That, that was, That's a real challenge. It's an ongoing challenge. But... Not a lot of uh, not a lot of legal uh, work, not much of that, not much legal barrier to setting up a business. Mm-hmm. Uh, the day that I announced on my blog that I was leaving MD Anderson, I I got a uh, a call from a pharmaceutical company uh, where someone said, "Hey, I've been hoping you'd quit your job. I've got a project <laughs> for you." And I thought, "Man, this is going to be easy." <laughs> but what I didn't realize at the time is just how slow these things can move. Uh, it was probably about nine months after that, before I got a check, just between the the time it took to write a contract, to set things up, mm-hmm. and get started. And then, then they, they paid their invoices late. And so, yeah, I think we have a lot of um, stuff to share here. <laughs> Let's stay on this topic for a bit because, yeah, this this can be really difficult and also really interesting to a lot of people out there who are considering the same type of leap into the unknown. So, yeah, payments are one thing. You say not much in, in terms of legalese. Do you, did you already have your own contract? I assume in this industry, you say pharmaceutical, it's 
it's it's quite regulated. Um, it's probably trickier than other industries. We had one client from there and it can get really hairy with all the regulations and so on. Do you have your own templates for legalese or do you accept, like when you negotiate a contract, do you accept theirs, review theirs? Uh, it varies. Uh, sometimes I'll use my contract. Sometimes I'll, I'll use the client's contract. Okay. So just, just info for people listening in, um, that there's a bunch of sites online where you can get some, a sort of template for contracting services. And it's really a good idea to have some contracts. Sometimes I come across freelancers and they just kind of wing it. Uh, but once you start hitting bigger contracts and so on, it's a good idea to have some backup. We never had to use it, luckily, like we do sign the NDAs and so on. I assume you do as well. Um, <laughs> so we never were in that type of dispute, but it gives you peace of mind. So it's And it's not that expensive. It's not like you have to get a, get a lawyer and spend 10,000 bucks up front on, on getting the documents. Um, did you do it the same way or how did you do yours? Yeah, I've done some things that way. I've done some things through my lawyer and some things where it's just the, the client's contract. Okay. I would say just one quick perspective on lawyers. The One of the main advantages of a lawyer is it's their job to say things that you might not want to say. There are things that might seem uh, rude or I don't know, uh, awkward uh, if you're saying them first person, but it's perfectly natural for someone else to say it third person. So that's one of the advantages of a lawyer. Do you, do you have an example? What do you mean? Well, I mean, if you're negotiating a contract with somebody, you know, it would be really awkward to say, and what if you don't pay me? What if you cheat me? What if you, <laughs> you just, it just, just seems uh, really impolite. And yet a lawyer can say exactly those things, maybe a little more you know, polite language, but that's what they do. Yeah. Yeah. They're covering all the possibilities. Yeah. That's right. And they can do it in a very professional way where it, it's not awkward at all. Yeah, definitely. We, we also had that where lawyers can, can get a little bit out of hand and they start coming up with scenarios which are really affecting sales. Like it's a little too much. So I think there's some line. I'm not sure what the right, how to position it properly, uh, where that line really is. But uh, it, there's such thing as too much legalese, I would say. Like I said, we never really had to use it. So I'm more on the side of, oh, let, let's not overdo it. Right. And I, I haven't either. I've had very, I've had very reasonable uh, clients. Yeah. We were lucky that way. So actually, your first client came through your blog. So that's that was one of my questions. Um, but clearly, that's uh, that, that part of marketing works. Um, do you get a lot of your clients through your writing and tweeting? I do. Um, I, I get a number of people who contact me because of something they, they've seen that I've written online. Hmm. Get some leads through referrals, uh, some through LinkedIn, I, um, just a variety. Yeah. For us, it's really open source. Like we, we have some open source packages that people use. So it's more that, uh, not as much the, the blogging. I wish I could blog more. Um, it's been my resolution. Actually, that's part of the reason why I do podcasts because I <laughs> rarely find the time to blog. So I'm, <laughs> I'm also hoping that through talking like this, I, uh, I keep promising publishing stuff but instead if people listen to the podcast maybe they can get the same information hopefully when we get these leads some of them are good leads and you can usually tell quickly um, because they they under they kind of scope it up front and they ask for the discovery and, and the whole thing seems sane but we also get a lot of requests which are 
let's say not as sane <laughs> without making it sound too bad but a lot of requests where people want to you know they have one thousand dollars and they want to create a trading platform worth millions so they don't really have an understanding oh, sure. of the process so i i personally call them like not they're not good leads i call them crazies which is a bit nasty and they're not really crazy they just want a lot of value for not much money i can understand that uh, but it's not good for us so uh, do you get a lot of those as well? I get a few. Um, yeah, I've I've had the thing where somebody is is sure that they have an idea that's going to bring in millions or billions, uh, but they don't have thousands to pay me, and so that's not a very long conversation. Yeah. Um, and in one fellow in particular, is just um, he had some idea that I, I just wrote back and said uh, I really don't think this would would work. You know, I, I don't feel right taking your money. I just don't think this could succeed. Mm-hmm. And they said, well, would you do it for equity? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I didn't even reply. I was like, did you, did you not hear what I just said? I think this is going to fail and you want to offer me a piece of it? <laughs> oh yeah. Equity. That's, that's a good one. I actually did that mistake. I'm, I'm almost ashamed to say. So when I was starting out, there were a few companies and, and they did pay me, but it was like part, part, part cash, part equity. Of course, nothing ever came out of it. That was a mistake. I'm, I'm not going to do again, but yeah, that's, uh, that's popular in this today's world of startups they offer equity yeah i've had a few leads for just impossible projects like uh one person had a data set of one data point that he wanted me to analyze and then another person had no data points and it took me a while to realize this that uh they had absolutely no data, and yet they wanted a statistical analysis, which was just kind of bizarre. Yeah, the, the understanding of the process, that's probably the red flag. Like, if they don't even understand how consulting works, it's its nobody's fault. It's, it's just, I'm, I'm always polite when that happens and try to be clear. Um, but yeah, no, no, no thanks. Sure. And, you know, sometimes I... You know, I, I can't really help somebody, but I can maybe point them in the right directions. You know, I don't think you need me. Here's what you need. Because, mm-hmm. um, you know, sometimes people have a very simple request. I think it's something more difficult than it is. And I just so I just try to point them like, you know, sometimes like uh, you don't need a consultant here. You need to read this Wikipedia article or uh, <laughs> or maybe you know, something like that. Mm. Yeah, I get some background. Sure. So what, actually, what what's your process for figuring out the if, if the lead is good uh, what we ended up just just to give a, some intro what we ended up settling on is we have this discovery call where we talk about the scope and, and see if the budget is there and so on how if the fit is there because we don't do everything machine learning is so huge these days you you can't really specialize in everything so we kind of specialize in this text processing field so we don't do speech recognition and so on so, so that's one thing. And after that, we have a discovery phase uh, where we just, this is a paid part of a, of a project where we really get into the data, maybe sign some NDA and see how the full, what the full project would be like. Like, do they have the data? Is, is it clearly scoped? How much effort would it be? Um, sort of build the proposal there. And then the, that's the full project and then maybe some follow up with maintenance and so on. But that's just how we do it. I'm sure other people do it differently and also your projects maybe look differently. So I'm really curious, what what does your process look like for a project? Yeah, I think that um, I probably have a little wider variety of clients. And so I don't have the same sort of formal process. I mean, some projects that I do are 
you know, data analysis or statistical design. Mm -hmm. uh, some may have no statistical component to them. They may, may be a more mathematical project or a software project. So, you know, all these are pretty different. Okay. So speaking of statistical design, have you had any projects in the e-discovery domain, that, that legal type of stuff? Um, I've done some expert testimony for lawyers. So, you know, there's some data analysis involved with that. Yeah, we had a few of those. It was it's really interesting. That whole domain, well, first of all, they use different terminology. So this predictive coding and, and words like that, uh, which is unusual in in, in normal machine learning, you call it classification and so on, or regression. So that was interesting. And also they have a lot of emphasis on really making the recall robust. Like you really have to prove that the, the documents you're giving, that the recall level is at the level that you're saying it is. Usually this is not much of an issue in, in other projects. It's like, okay, recall is whatever, 90% and calculate it on some test set, but I, I, we, but what I found is in this legal domain in e-discovery, you really have to be careful that you haven't sort of polluted the process and that, that your numbers are correct. So there's much more emphasis on the statistical side. I found that really interesting. Now, do you work with clients around the world? It's mostly in the U.S., but yeah, yeah, around the world. So I guess with legal work, that would take on a different flavor in, in different countries, I guess. Yeah, this was all U.S., yeah. In in Europe, this works, oh, okay. this works very differently, the litigation process and so on. So, yeah, I assume that I don't know if the industry is even there in in, in Europe. Um, this was U.S. So, so John, so it's it's mostly math and statistics for you. What kind of industries do you get the, the projects in? Well, uh, at first I started out doing mostly work uh, with pharmaceutical, biotech, Uh, just because that was my most recent experience. Mm -hmm. But um, things have shifted over time. And now I I have, I, I still do some work like that, working with, uh, say, medical device startups. Mm -hmm. But uh, I also do uh, work for software companies, uh, for lawyers, as we mentioned. Um, uh I'm working on some stuff for Amazon right now. So mm. really a variety of, of clients. And it's, it's funny, you know, anything you read about marketing, you know, starts out, well, what industry are you in and so forth? But so much of what I do cuts across industries. Mm. I mean, it sounds like I'm all over the globe and I'm not, I mean, I'm there. Uh, I guess I have more of a technical specialization that that's not specialized by industry. Well, yeah, that, that's what math is, obviously. But but still, what I found is we kind of have clients in one industry and then we get referrals in that industry and kind of snowballs. Uh, it's not like we choose it, but sure. it somehow happens. So, yeah, we get this legal a lot. We get HR a lot and we get media a lot. Basically, industries where there's a lot of text because that's really where we are experts. So I'm just wondering what what, what is that for you? The pharmaceutical is it's really interesting to me. So uh, I don't know how much you can share. <laughs> I'm sure you have your restrictions, but can you maybe walk me through like a project like that? Like what, what is involved? Yeah, let me think about that. Um, so a lot of projects involve some sort of mathematical modeling. Uh, and so maybe uh, biomedical data. And you're, you're trying to build some machine that models some medical process. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, that's a template that a lot of things fall under. 
I mean, there's nothing proprietary there. That's uh, you know, just the way a lot of things work. Uh, I will say that the people or clients vary tremendously in their sophistication. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, sometimes these models are very simple. Sometimes they're, they're very sophisticated. Um, it kind of depends on whether, well, it, of course, it depends on the nature of the problem you're trying to solve. Also depends on the sophistication of your client. I mean, sometimes uh, you know, I'll have clients that are businessmen or uh you know, specialists in, in some problem domain, but not mathematicians. And then I have some projects where my clients uh, are very uh, technical people, you know, maybe uh, you know, math, science, PhDs. So, you know, those tend to be you know, more sophisticated models. So it, for, those, for those projects, they've already started a process and you know they're bringing in more specialized help yeah this is fascinating because this it's related to what we just discussed like specializing in a few industries because what we find is that the subject matter expertise it it really matters so um, when we have a new industry it's a lot of learning like we have the math and we have the statistics and we have the software engineering that's fine but really how to shoehorn how to fit that um, onto the domain it's pretty much always non-trivial. It doesn't happen that we just take, you know, scikit-learn and we just <laughs> slap some data onto it. A big part of it is somehow managing the data and understanding the goals of that business and so on. And that's really different in, in each industry. So maybe that's also part of the sure. reason that, that we're specialized a little bit because that, that process is involved and nobody wants to pay you for that, really, um, <laughs> to learn the basics. Um, so it's better if you, you can sort of hit the ground running for that industry. Do you find the same thing? I guess the ideal project is when you're working with people who really know their stuff, but they're in a complementary area. So you're not stepping on each other's toes. Uh, you know, the division of labor is clear and you have complementary perspectives and that can work really well. Um, you know, for example, I was working on a project uh, a few months ago where uh, I was doing some uh, acoustics and I was uh you know, trying to parse some things that were just really hard to tease apart. But, uh, you know, I had the mathematical perspective and I was working with somebody who had a, a really good uh, uh, audio perspective. And, you know, between the two of us, we could we could often figure things out. That's the way to do it. <laughs> so that's, that's for the technical part. Uh, I know this is a bit of a silly question, but do you have any tools that you find are really that you find yourself using more often than other tools. I know in consulting it's whatever tool works best, but what would you say is, is something that's like an evergreen for you? I would say one of the things that that's an evergreen for me is Emacs. Oh, okay, uh, and that's where I've kind of come full circle. I, I used Emacs in college, and then uh, I pretty quickly dropped it. Because I, I was doing Windows development and you know, the Windows Emacs thing was just too much of an impedance mismatch. Um, and then, you know, years later, I said, you know, I'm, I'm using a different editor for everything I do, every kind of file. Uh, I, I miss the days of Emacs. I want to find something like Emacs, not Emacs. You know, it's old and crafty. I don't want to use that, but I want something like it. And then I realized after a while, like, no, I, I really do <laughs> want Emacs. But uh, it's an acquired taste, but I really like being able to use one tool for a lot of different things. 
And I like that everything is text. There's nothing that's inaccessible, like, you know, with, with some applications. Oh, you can't copy and paste this text for whatever reason. You can read it, but you can't do anything with it. I mean, you don't have that with Emacs. And, you know, it is crafty. You know, there's some things about it that are kind of weird, but I'm used to them. And just the ability to do more with one tool kind of outweighs uh, some of the other things. I mean, I used to really buy into the idea of uh, use the best tool for each little task. And after a while, I said, no, that's that's just wearing me out. I've got all these programs that I'm using, and I don't know any of them well. Uh, I want to learn something that I can get a lot of mileage out of. Sure. Does the same thing, some, same observation apply to, let's say, languages and platforms? Do you, do you use a lot of those? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I was using a dozen different languages and didn't know any of them very well. And uh, I decided, you know, with, with, with Python, it may not be the best choice for, for a lot of things, but it's not a bad choice for a, a, a wide spectrum. And, you know, I can, I can do my numerical computing with SciPy, uh, but I could also just do text munging. I could also do scripting. You know, I can do a wide variety of things all in one language. Hmm. And so, uh, yeah, I, I really got tired of paying the, the transaction cost of moving back and forth between different tools. And so, yeah, I like to hmm. you know, do more with a small number of tools. Yeah. You won't find me complaining there. We use Python a lot as well. It, it has its, um, let's say, issues, um, especially with long-term projects, but for this type of like prototyping or, or doing innovative projects, because I think that's often what, when, what it comes down to. When people reach out to consultants, it's something new that they can't do themselves. People seldom come to us, you know, because something is too easy. <laughs> it's because it's too hard. <laughs> So, so there's a big component of this right. iteration and prototyping, and Python really excels there. So that's that's what we use a lot as well. And, and there's something I've noticed about the Python community is that the Python community isn't just real gung ho Python, or at least not the people that I've hung around. Uh, when I first went to the SciPy conference, I was really surprised at just the pragmatic attitude you know somebody would give a talk oh here's some here's a project i did that was 80 percent python and you know you, there's some languages if you say that you only use their language for 80 percent you know people throw tomatoes at you but the the python community is not like that like oh sure you develop you know part of it in c plus plus for efficiency that's cool or you know did the front end with javascript or whatever uh nobody's going to judge you for that mm-hmm so why do you th- I observe the same thing? It's, it's very pragmatically oriented, and I have some theories about why that is. But why do you think Python is like that? This sort of welcoming community that that's mature. Um, I mean, I think part of it is that uh, you know I wrote a blog post calling Python a voluntary language. Uh, people aren't usually forced into writing Python. Uh, a lot of times, it's not their first language. It's not a language that their employer requires them to write. Uh, and so that creates a little different atmosphere, um, you know, whereas, you know, there's people who will say, yeah, I'm writing Java by day because I'm required to, but then I go home and I do, you know, something different. Uh, I think another thing is just kind of historical accident. You know, if, if Travis Soliphant had decided he was going to write numerical libraries for 
Ruby or Pearl. Maybe we, you know more of us would be doing Ruby or Pearl, but he he didn't. He did Python, and and it just gained momentum. And now there's this treasure trove of really uh, good numerical software all written in Python. Hmm. Or at least wrapped in Python. A lot of it's actually not written in Python, but that doesn't matter. Yeah, that's, that's what I think as well. That it's, it's this historical roots that people use it to really solve, to, to scratch their itch, to solve practical needs. And you, you can really tell with the tools. If somebody wrote it just so it can process a lot of data and they call it big data, you know, but they never actually ran it on big data. That happens to us quite a bit. Um, there are some frameworks out there which shall remain nameless, but which have these, which are written in Scala and which have these claims of big data. And when we actually try running it on big data, it's like integers overflow. It's just, you know, four bytes. And so they, they, they can't handle more than whatever, two, two billion items or something. And that kind of tells me that nobody ever tried it on big data, actually. So it's, it's more like marketing and you don't have that with Python. So Python is on the opposite end. People really use it. Um, they kind of, when they say they, they need it for something, they really need it and they offer the patches and so on. So it's, it's more mature, I would say. And it's from there, it snowballs, like you said, a historical accident and it kind of went from there. A strong academic background too. There's also a sense of aesthetics. You know, Python has a different, I mean, the language itself has a different feel than some other languages in that it's kind of a moderate emphasis on performance and moderate emphasis on elegance. You know, it's, it's not a very opinionated language. You know, it's not like Haskell. Okay. Functional purity above all, you know, and then it's, it's not like, like that, but it's not also, neither is it, well, performance doesn't matter. It's, it's, it kind of strikes a middle ground. Hmm. Well, I think we're going to agree here. Let's, let's pick some more controversial topic. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, how about, how do you feel about, since we're on the topic of Python, how do you feel about the divide between Python 2 and, and Python 3? Does that affect you? And, and did you notice that? Uh, you know, it, it, it was a little while before SciPy moved to Python 3. As soon as it moved to Python 3, the 2 versus 3 divide didn't matter to me anymore. And frankly, I don't find the languages that different. I mean, in Python 3, you have to put parentheses around your print arguments. That's the biggest thing. I'm sure there's others. And by now, there's probably Python 3 features that I'm using that I don't realize are Python 3. But I didn't think the 2 versus 3 thing was such a big deal. Yeah, it was kind of interesting, that whole whole controversy all right so let's let's move on from python the, the consulting is really interesting let's um so so the project goes on um it's finished how long do your projects i know there's a spectrum and maybe you, you, this is private information but the projects how long do they last in, in your field in, in your consulting yeah that is all over the map i've had projects last over a year and i've had projects last uh, a few hours do you do them simultaneously? Like, do you have multiple projects running at once? I do. You know, at first, I had a lot of small projects because, as a rule of thumb, the, the time it takes a company to pay an invoice is proportional to their size. So uh, <laughs> when I first started out, I had a lot of large clients who were very slow to pay. And so uh, it was good to have small clients who paid quickly to keep the cash flow going. Mm -hmm. was, was your family nervous? I know, you know, you mentioned nine months between the first engagement and the first paycheck. That, that sounds um, 
tricky. Right. Well, fortunately, there were other projects that oh, okay. that came up and cashed out <laughs> in that nine month window. Uh, yeah. So at first, these small projects really helped a lot. And yeah, and my wife was very supportive. Yeah. It's something we talked about for a long time, and she was very supportive when I supportive when I finally did it. Uh, what I was going to say about the small projects, though, is, um, you know, at first I didn't turn anything down. You know, anything that came across the door, great, I'll do it. <laughs> now I'm getting a little more selective about small projects uh, just because the uh, the transaction cost can eat you alive. I mean, if you put several hours unpaid into setting up a project mm-hmm. and then it's a small project, then uh, that's – that's not profitable, but also it's just kind of a distraction. Uh, every project kind of takes up a piece of your mind, whether it's, uh, you know, a thousand dollar project or a quarter million dollar project. It's all kind of, you know, uh, taking up equal space in psychic RAM. Yeah. So uh, I sure. try not to have too many, uh, too many small projects or try to be a little more uh, selective now about the small projects. Yes, listen up, people. This is this is the truth. There's a cognitive load associated with anything you do, and if you if you take up too many tasks, even if there's little ones, it, it, you're just gonna be overwhelmed. So, yeah, we found the same thing, and we don't do small ones anymore. Really, it's really tricky. But on the other hand, we run this open source forum, so we give a lot of small support there, but it's all public. So um, that that's how we kind of solve this issue. If you need a little help and you're okay with discussing it publicly. And you get it for free uh, on our mailing list or the the forum. And if it's private and confidential, then you'll have to pay. And that's how we do it. So I think it's a bit similar with your blogging. You give a lot of actually value and information there for free, pretty much. So hopefully people learn from that. The, the, The family part was really interesting to me. I also found that when I was quitting, let's say, a static, cushy job um, that I had as as a lead developer. It's it's a leap into the unknown, and I find that sometimes guys are kind of more eager to do this leap, <laughs> more adventurous, whereas, whereas the <laughs> yeah. family is like, mm, there's a steady income and we're kind of fine. How about we don't do it or let, let's think this through? But my wife was supportive as well, my fiancé back then, so um, that, that really helped. Yeah. Well, one bit of advice I always uh, uh, tell people is that uh, you may not be able to to transition into going out on your own. Uh, I mean, it sounds nice. Just, you know, do some consulting on the side and uh, ramp it up to the point where that's a substantial part of your income. And then you just, you know, gradually transition over to that. That's not what happened for me at all. Uh, And I imagine my uh, experience is is common to some people, at least. you know, until until you are out on your own, you just don't have the, the time or the credibility to go after uh, big projects, at least. Um, and so I think, at least in my experience, at some point, you just have to make the leap. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think in our case, it helped a little bit that we had this background. You had the blog. You said some clients already found you through there. I had the open source, which was you know kind of popular back then. Uh, this was what 2000, right. 2011 when I started. So I got my leads that way and it wasn't that much of a risk. But yeah, if you have nothing, if your GitHub page is blank and <laughs> you, you can't talk about your past work very much because it's all confidential, then, um, it might be trickier. Yeah. So maybe it's easy for us to say it's like one, two, three profit, but, um, 
doing the legwork, it actually didn't happen immediately. Like it's oh, not at all. You know, it's interesting about saying about not being able to talk about things. One of the nice things about being at MD Anderson while I was blogging was that I I could write about my work, uh, or at least I didn't have I didn't feel like I needed to uh, obfuscate anything about my work. Mm -hmm. A lot of it was. Uh, was very much in the open. Uh, since then, uh, I can write about technical things that maybe come out of my work, but I can't really talk about the work per se, usually. Yeah, that's also something we struggle with. We do really interesting stuff. And you mentioned you work for Amazon. So now we also have a, we also work from Amazon, but we can't really tell people what we do because it's all right. <laughs> kind of confidential. <laughs> and it, it can get a little annoying because we really want to talk about the cool stuff. So then you kind of have to create alternative scenarios which show some of it but not obviously not directly that and definitely not with the data <laughs> that's the most sensitive part but uh, to kind of work around it so john how do you keep up with news i've actually kind of come full circle with that where i i am trying not to keep up with many things you know for a while there i was you know just increasingly trying to keep on top of more and more and that just got to be exhausting. So I've really cut back on that. When I, when I realized a lot of the things that, that I was reading were just really not that useful. A lot of it, you know, until you have a need for it. I mean, it's, it's good to be aware of what's out there, but you, you can't really look at things in any detail uh, until you need them. It wouldn't stick if you did. So I, I don't try to stay on top of absolutely everything. There are a few podcasts I listen to. You know, I'll look at Hacker News once in a while, but I've I've actually tried to I've deliberately kind of backed off from trying to keep on top of everything. Because what I find is there's so much stuff going on in the academic world as publish or perish, uh, as I'm sure you're familiar with. Um, so there's so much the huge volumes of publications, uh, most of them not that critical, but you you never know. And the same thing for the software industry. So there's a, a lot of new tools. I like to compare that to the Cambrian explosion. Like there's, there's so many things, so so much variety uh, being produced. How do you keep up with everything? How, how I do it is I just I just kind of don't follow stuff. So I don't know if if that's what you do. Uh, what I do is I it's like with with love. Like people say, if it's good, if, if it's worth it, it will come back. Let it go. So I kind of let it go. And if I keep hearing about a technique or a paper or a software tool over and over again, I kind of look into it, but I don't actively um, follow the news anymore. That's right. Like I've come full circle. I used um, I used to just say, well, I'll, le I'll learn things as I need them. And you can't completely adopt that strategy. There's some things you have to learn before you can use them. You have to know about them. You have to have, you have to know what tools to pick. So you can't learn everything just in time. But on the other hand, you can't learn everything just in case either. Yeah. <laughs> and I, like I've come kind of full circle from trying to keep on top of everything to more learning things as needed, uh, especially because my you know my clients' needs are so you know diverse. They'll uh, like okay, we want you to use. Uh, you know, this language that you haven't used in a long time and we want you to do this and this and you say, okay, you know, and say you do it. Mm. Yeah, exactly. So that's, that's how that is. Um, th there's one topic we really have to broach. Uh, I think it's 
it's kind of a touchy, touchy subject. So I'm not sure how we'll, uh, <laughs> how we'll go about this, but that's the topic of pricing. A lot of people, especially when they're starting out, are curious how to do this. I don't know why I was. So let, let me, let me start. Let me give my opinion. So you definitely need to count in the fact that you won't be fully booked if you're starting out. Plus that you will be learning a lot. Like I mentioned that legalese, accounting, it's probably easier in the US, but if you're in Europe or other parts of the world, that's, that's, it's going to be a, pain in the butt um all, all that stuff how do you report it and value added tax and, and all these other things so there's a steep learning curve in the beginning so that's the, definitely you have to price that in and also how to keep raising the price that's that's another question so you start somewhere at, at the amount of x whatever that is per project per hour per week i don't know how you bill uh, but then you have to obviously kind of once you get more clients and you sort of get on the map, um, you have to keep going up. Um, so that's just a general intro. How do you feel about pricing? To <laughs> right, well, I say you know it helps to look at it from from both sides of the table. So from your own perspective, sure, you need to charge more than you realize because you're not going to work forty billable hours a week. You're going to take vacations. You're going to get sick. You're going to get called on jury duty. Uh, you're going to have times when you just don't want to work or you don't have work. I mean, those are all good reasons to charge more than you think, but none of those actually matter to the client. Uh, client doesn't care what you need. They want they care about what is your work worth to them, but they also realize that a client is worth several times as much. I mean, a consultant is worth several times as much as an employee. And I say that for several reasons. For one, you, you're often calling a consultant because they have some specialized knowledge. But even if that's not the case, even if you have the exact same skill set as the employees in the company, you're still worth a lot more per hour because you have nothing else to do. You don't have to attend trainings and and uh and so forth you don't have to play office politics and you're not charging when you're not working i mean most most employees maybe put in 20 hours of real work a week if they they ostensibly put in 40 maybe half of that's productive so right there if you're you only charging when you're getting work done you're worth twice as much as an employee so i think a savvy client would realize that. Yeah, absolutely. And you want savvy clients. That, that's point one. So as for being able to raise the price, what has been your strategy? So you, we already discussed you have these marketing outlets, your blog, your Twitter, LinkedIn, and, and so on. Uh, do you see a lot of difference between how you how you charged, let's say, when you started out this, what was it, 2013 versus how you do things now? Uh I don't really have a good answer for that. Do you, do you charge per hour or per project? What's what's your business model? I I do both. I sometimes charge per project, sometimes per hour. I prefer charging per project, but uh, you, you can't have a fixed bid without a fixed scope. Uh, so if something sounds the least bit open-ended, uh, you need to either box it in you know, setting clear expectations or, or charge by time. Mm -hmm. 
that's uh, kind of goes back circles back to what we discussed a while ago. So a lot of these projects are highly innovative. And a big part of actually the project is figuring out the scope. So <laughs> kind of setting a fixed project price before you even know like what's, what's really involved. That's, that's really risky on your side. Obviously the clients would like that. Um, but it's really risky. So we, the, the middle ground that we found that I found useful is we do this discovery phase. Like I mentioned a smaller, let's say one week or several days of we really look into your data, uh, and we prepare the proposal. Uh, that we can really stand stand by like we know what's involved we maybe play with uh, even with some code during this phase and once that's clear we can actually propose a fixed price uh, which which is what clients really want in the end uh, with some degree of confidence that we won't be losing money on that yeah i i've run across some clients that want to do things fixed bid uh, some who don't, though, even even if I propose it, which is kind of odd because they're effectively saying we would rather shoulder the risk uh, by paying by the hour. That's interesting. Yeah, because yeah, I mean, when you agree to do it fixed bid, you're shouldering the, the risk. But uh, the, a lot of companies would rather take that risk on themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in the end, what, what happens actually, like pragmatically during projects, at least for us, is the initial scope, it gets changed anyway. So there's this understanding, and especially with repeat customers who already know how things work, um, there's this expectation, yeah, there will be some back and forth, some clarifications. So as long as the output is there and the value is being produced, um, what was in the initial scope is maybe not as not, not as important. So it's there's some flexibility in that. It's not like everything is set in stone um, before the project starts. That's right. And in practice, there's this gray zone between fixed bid and hourly. Uh, you know, even if it's hourly, you say uh, yeah, this is the hourly rate, and this is about how many hours I expect it will take. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of a fixed bid. I mean, there's there's that gray zone. Yeah. That's right. Interesting. So do you, do you feel comfortable discussing any numbers here or giving advice to people who may be starting out what, what they should be doing? I would say as, as far as just a rule of thumb, maybe if you're starting out, I would say at least three times your hourly salary. Uh, I mean, some people are shocked by that, but uh, realize that for one thing, the amount that you take home is not what it costs your employer to, to hire you. Uh, you have overhead and you probably don't work 40 hours a week, even if you think you do. I mean, so there, there's a bunch of reasons why uh, it's, it's not unreasonable to say that you want maybe three times uh, or four times what you ostensibly make an hour as a salaried person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I would say that's, that's very, very sensible <laughs> multiple. Sure. And another thing from the client's perspective, the nice thing about a consultant is that they're a hired gun. You hire them to do something and then you cut them off. Whereas you, you hire an employee, you have something for them to do initially, but you don't just fire them the minute that project is done. Uh, they have some downtime and maybe they have another project. Maybe they twiddle their thumbs a little bit between projects. Uh, maybe they have some work to do. You wish they had more, but you know you're paying them anyway. You you don't have any of that with a consultant. You hire them in to do a job. When the job's done, you quit paying them, and you know that's worth a premium. Yeah, 
definitely. And on, on the topic of the extra overhead for the employer, uh, yeah, I don't know about the US, but in Europe, this is this is double your take-home pay. At least in Czech Republic, it's double. It differs a little bit across the different countries in Europe, but it's not a small amount. We're not talking like 10% or 20%. It's double. The company pays double what you get. So uh, that's a good perspective to have as you negotiate your rate. Yes, along those lines, I would say uh, I think a lot of a lot of technical people don't realize how important marketing is or distribution. They think these things just happen. Uh, you, you talk to any engineer, they think they're doing the real work in the company and all the people in sales are, are just leeches that are, uh, you know, living off of them. And, you know, when these people go out on their own, they're in for a rude awakening. Um, work doesn't just magically show up. Uh, you know, so after you've been out for a while, you, you realize that, well, maybe the, uh, the people in sales are doing something worthwhile. <laughs> I mean, especially like if you're at a consulting company, you, you you kind of feel like you're almost on your own. You say, well, gosh, my employer is is renting me out at this certain rate. You know, I should be able to do that on my own and and make just as much. Well, you don't appreciate how much work they're doing to get the work and you don't appreciate their intangible assets, the uh, the name that they have. Even if it's not a matter of time that they put in, you know, they've built a reputation. They have they have networks, they have connections and they have these intangible things that are worth a lot more than most people think. Absolutely. I, I agree here. It's it's a lot of work setting up this stuff and making sure there's a good pipeline because now I, it's, it's not just me like freelancing, consulting. I have a bunch of people in our company and we work as a team and I try to shield them from a lot of this, but it's exactly like you say, it's a, a big part of it is making sure the pipeline is full and everything is working smoothly and it's really non, non-trivial. So that's the many hats that you have to wear uh, as a consultant or as a, as a business owner. Uh, it can be absolutely, also, yeah, uh, brings a lot of anxiety to having to feed other people. I think maybe you found the perfect spot, like really working for yourself. Um, <laughs> nobody to blame nobody to complain to that's i think that's maybe a a great place to be once you once you get extra people who depend on you whether they're like subcontractors or employees um it gets hairier do you have any uh, aspirations there well i do have other people that i work with but uh, not employees it's more of a more of a loose network and so you know then i'm paying somebody when i have a project for them so I, I don't have the responsibility of anybody else's mortgage that way. Yeah, that's 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 a little easier. Um, that's a, that's a good way to structure it. Sure. Okay. So a, a few questions. I'm really curious. We discussed a lot of technical stuff, but I'm also curious about John as a as a person. So you already mentioned you have a supportive family. That's that's a big part of it. How do you keep fit? This is something that uh, that's really important to you know people in our industry. What do you do? Well. Um, you know, I'm in better shape since I, I left my, my previous job. Um, a lot of people you know, find that they're under more stress when they're out on their own. I'm under less stress. Uh, <laughs> I sleep better. Uh, I don't have a long commute. I, I live in the outskirts of Houston. And I would drive into town and I, I had, a, had a very long commute and I was so glad to let that go. Uh, I also have t- more time for exercise. You know, if I just want to go out in the middle of the day for a bike ride for an hour, I can do that. 
it was kind of hard to do anything like that when I had a an, uh, more of a regular job. Mm-hmm. I guess the only downside is, uh, you know, I, I work a few feet away from a refrigerator, so I have to not just go to the fridge every time I can. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 tricky. Also, when when you wear this many hats and you have to do so many things, it's easy to get overwhelmed. So I also have to find a specific routine where I where I do exercise. And I live on a like a little island in South Korea. Um, and it's really beautiful here. So we have mountains and we have the sea and so on. So it's kind of easy for me to. Uh, you know, have a little break maybe after lunch and go for a stroll. That's really helpful. Uh, and it's something I had to learn. Like when I was starting out, it was really overwhelming, all that stuff. And I didn't do it. And it did affect the quality of my work, I would say. So not a great idea, obviously. I don't think many people err on the side of, of spending too much time stepping away from the computer and walking around. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there's some grind involved uh, in, in running your business, that's for sure. Uh, but yeah, the health really is important. So, do you do you get to travel a lot? So you mentioned you you live in Texas. Uh, I've had a, a chance to travel. Uh, been to Europe a few times, and mm, where uh, where about in Europe? Uh, so I've I've been to uh, Bordeaux, been to um, uh, Heidelberg a couple times. Uh, Arus, Copenhagen, I've been to the Netherlands. So I've had a uh, few chances to go to Europe. Mm-hmm. Do you enjoy traveling? I enjoy traveling occasionally. Uh, I like that I just I travel every few months. That's that's enough. <laughs> you know, uh, my brother-in-law travels every week. I don't want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. Uh, gets to especially the jet lag i just got back from europe and was giving some some trainings there and it's uh it's not pleasant that part of traveling but we did quite a bit of it in our time and now we're kind of happy in asia so i think we're gonna stay here for a while have you ever been to east asia no i haven't well you're very well welcome to come and visit if you want a little break <laughs> <laughs> that'd be fantastic i've been to europe and australia but i haven't been uh any other continents yeah korea or japan they're really fascinating countries i can only recommend you're welcome to come and join i think we're nearing our end do you have any shout outs or anything else you would like to say here well that's such a uh, open-ended opportunity i should think of something but <laughs> nothing comes marketing to mind. think of marketing <laughs> <laughs> that's right no I, i appreciate you inviting me to your podcast i've enjoyed talking with you I enjoyed talking to you very much too. This was our first time, but I feel there's much more. This hour really went by super quick. I feel there's much more we could discuss. Um, but for an initial um, chat, I think this was this was great. Hopefully, it was also useful to our listeners. And and if you have any questions around consulting, I keep warning people. I keep promising that I will write more about that but i think this format is maybe better suited so if you have questions just tweet out to me or or to john will i'll myself will be happy to answer your tweets or maybe discuss something next time this topic there's so much to say we just barely scratched the surface about how how to do the various things but this is close to my heart we didn't discuss mathematics very much which is another thing close to my heart but we <laughs> we ran out of uh, ran out of time here um Great. So thanks again, John. Um, It's been a pleasure. I hope we can uh, do this again soon. Yes, let's stay in touch. That's it for today. Thanks for tuning in. 
If you enjoyed this podcast, there are several ways you can support it. Leave a review on iTunes, comment on SoundCloud or YouTube, or wherever you happen to listen to this. Share on social media with your friends. And if you have any requests for interesting guests or specific topics to cover, just ping me on Twitter or email. Look for Radim, R-A-D-I-M.